Please welcome Mona Singh. It's my great pleasure to be here um, and to speak in this uh, beautiful venue, so I thank Amazon for having me. So I'm a computer scientist in Princeton University, and my group is really a computational biology group. And we work pretty broadly in computational biology, and over the last 20 years, we've really been interested in trying to interpret genomes largely at the level of proteins. In the last few years, though, last five to 10 years, we've become really interested and doing genome, um, genomics research on cancer genomes and developing computational methods that can help us make sense of cancer cells. Um, you know, the public health burden of cancer is enormous. Every year worldwide, we have tens of millions of people who are diagnosed with cancer, and sadly, more than half of these people will eventually die of cancer. In the United States, it's estimated that our lifetime risk of being diagnosed with cancer is one in three, and the lifetime risk of someone dying from cancer is one in five. So it's clear that we have to keep doing cutting-edge, forward-thinking research in cancer. Now, when Nixon declared the war on cancer, we thought about cancer research really as something in the realm of hospitals and done by clinicians and molecular biologists. And what I want to tell you now is that that's, of course, still ongoing and extremely important. But now we as computer scientists also have an opportunity to make a big difference. So by leveraging these large-scale biomedical data repositories and using machine learning, statistical, and other computer science methods, um, we can develop intelligent systems that can help us understand the molecular basis of cancer and also to um, help you know, uh, think about therapeutics for cancer. Of course, our ultimate goal would be to uh, build systems that could help with drug development and that could also help really in a clinical setting. So I have to tell you a little bit more about cancer. So cancers uh, occur in our body um, when our own cells acquire mutations that allow them to grow uncontrollably. That is, these are mutations that are acquired uh, in our uh, lifetimes. So if we want to try to understand cancer with the hope of thinking about treatment, one thought is, well, maybe we should sequence the genomes of these cancer cells. So we can take a tumor biopsy, and we can sequence these genomes. Uh, but you know, we need to know what mutations occurred that are new. So we have to compare this to some normal cells within the same individual from where we took this biopsy, as shown here by the blood sample. So we sequence both pairs, and as you'll remember, a genome can be thought of just as a string over a four-letter alphabet. And we see where the differences are. In this example, there are two differences. And then we say, ah, these are mutations that were acquired in the cancer cells, and maybe these are the mutations that gave the capacity to these cells to grow uncontrollably. And if somehow we could target these mutations, maybe we can try to uh, treat uh, this individual's cancer. So this has important implications in, in treatment, as I just said. You can have two individuals that have the same type of cancer, say lung cancer. When you look at their cancer cells, though, and you sequence them, you see that their mutations in the genome, shown here by the DNA double helix, fall in different places. And if these individuals are lucky, there's going to be a drug that's available that'll target um, these mutations. All right. So to kind of systematically try to uncover what mutations 
a rise in cancer cells that, that allowed these cells to grow uncontrollably, there have been these worldwide efforts over the last 10 or so years that have really tried to do this in a high throughput manner. So today we have um, genomes for about 30,000 individuals across um, tens of different cancer types, and this type of data is just uh, gonna continue to grow because the cost of sequencing is so inexpensive. So uh, one thing that became apparent very early on, though, is that cancers are actually highly heterogeneous, um, even at the level of genomics. So what's shown in this plot is um, we have tens of different cancer types shown on the x-axis, and each dot corresponds to the number of mutations that are found per one million um, DNA bases, or per one million letters in that person's cancer. And so what you see is that these dots vary. So even within uh, one cancer type, uh, you can have many different numbers and many different types of mutations. And the second thing is that there are many, many mutations that can occur in any one individual's cancer. So you could have thousands of such mutations that occur in a cancer cell. Okay, so there are many mutations per cancer genome, but the really important thing is that there are only a few of these mutations within an individual that are thought to drive that person's cancer. The rest, they're just along for the ride. And so what I wanna tell you about today are two areas, so just really two projects out of many things that we work on um, that, that are in this realm. The first is how, from these sea of mutations, can we uncover those that are causal for cancer? And the second is how can we start to think about predicting drug response? So I'm gonna start with the first project, trying to uncover causal mutations uh, in cancer. So I already talked about how we have all these genomic sequences for cancer genomes, and that's the data we're gonna analyze. But, you know, for the last 20 or so years, biology has been transformed, and there's now lots and lots of various types of high-throughput data that give us some idea of how a cell works. And this is in normal cells, this is across organisms in human and pig, et cetera. This is also across populations. We have data about the 3D structures of some of the molecules within the cells. We also have this graph or network data about which molecules within the cell work together. So when we think about trying to build intelligent systems for cancer genomics, we think about putting cancer genomics data in the context of those other data sources as well. And that's what I wanna to talk to you about today. So uh, when we look at a genome, mutations within a cancer genome can lie everywhere, but some portions of the genome are more important than others. And one very important portion are those pieces of the genome that code for genes or proteins. And in the human genome, we have about 20,000 genes or proteins. Now, proteins are the things in, in, in our cells that are involved in virtually every biological process. They're the workhorse molecules of the cell, and they fold up in 3D to do their functions, and that's what's shown by these colorful pictures here. And they accomplish their functions by interacting with other molecules, whether, whether it's other proteins, whether it's with DNA, or whether it's other molecules that you find in the cell. So when we think about cancer mutations, and we're trying to uncover from the sea of all the mutations which one are important, we may want to think about those mutations that hit proteins. And then within proteins, we might, may want to think about those that interrupt these interactions, because these interactions are so vital for protein functioning. So we can think about proteins kind of in two ways. On the right, we have this 1D representation of proteins, and that's just a string over a 20-letter alphabet. 
and this can essentially be read off the genome. On the other hand, though, these proteins fold up. We heard about protein folding in the last talk very briefly. And these proteins, their functions depend on these 3D structures and the interactions that these 3D structures have with other molecules. The portions of the protein in this case, shown on the left, that, that participate in interactions are shown in red. When we go back to the protein sequence, the portions of the um, sequence that take part in these interactions can be quite spread out. And when we think about mutations, they're occurring at the level of sequences. And so if we're thinking which ones are the really important ones, we would think those that hit these red residues that have these red positions within proteins that are able to disrupt interactions may be the ones that are most interesting, or at least one of the most interesting to, to pursue. Because they would disrupt these interactions. So our hypothesis for one of our projects that I'm going to tell you about first is that cancer cells, or one of the way that cancer cells malfunction and uh, result in unproliferated, unproliferated growth is due to uh, mutations that disrupt these interactions and more generally the large-scale networks um, that these proteins participate in. And so what I'm going to tell you about is a method to identify mutations and the genes that are relevant for cancer, i.e., those where if you have mutations within these genes in the right places, you can lead the cell to have um, uncontrolled growth. Okay, so we're going to start off by focusing on interaction sites within protein sequences. So as I mentioned already, we have about 20,000 genes in the human genome. Sadly, though, um, even though there have been these large-scale efforts to determine structures, we only have structures for a small fraction of them. Using very smart computational in inference methods that bring together a lot of data sources, we can uh, bring this number up considerably, and we can get for about two-thirds of proteins knowledge about which portions of it participate in interactions. I won't tell you about how we do this. I'll tell you instead just about the modeling. So we have a protein sequence. We can think of it as a string over a 20-letter alphabet. For a portion of it, we have some knowledge about which positions within them are really important for interactions and thereby functions. And we model these as weights on each position. These weights are between um, 0 and 1. And so across the whole protein sequence, we have these partial per position 0 to 1 interaction potentials. So now what we want to do is to consider our whole uh, population of cancer genomes. I said we have about 30,000 of them to date, and this number is just growing. And we're going to look at each individual gene or protein uh, by itself. And we're going to try to infer whether that gene, when you look across this entire population um, of, of cancer genomes, accumulates mutations in positions that can disrupt interactions. So in this particular protein that I've drawn here, just as a line, we have um, two portions where we know something about which, which specific sites within them uh, participate in interactions. Each of these, for each position within these uh, ovals or gray regions, we have these zero to one potentials. We're going to look across our cohort of individuals and their cancer genomes and see where their mutations fall. In this case, they fall in a position where this per position score is one. And we're going to tally up a score that corresponds to the sum of these potentials. And in this case, we get three. And now we want to know whether this score three is high or low. So how do we do that? Well, kind of a standard trick that you can do is to use randomizations. So you can take these mutations and say, what, ha what would happen if we just random them, randomize them across this region? 
And we can use that to build a distribution and compute a mean and a variance. But it turns out, actually, you can be kind of smart about this, and you can analytically compute the mean and the variance. And then you can use this to compute a z-score. So the higher the score, the more enriched the mutations are to be falling in positions that could disrupt interactions and, then, and thus functionality. So I wanted to say that because we can do this thing analytically, we actually get a seven times speed up per shuffle. Before we figured out how to do it analytically, we were actually doing the shuffles. And we did usually about 1,000 shuffles. So we get a 7,000-fold increase just by doing this computational, um, computation analytically. OK, so uh, we have one region that we have modeled interaction data for. But typically, we have more than one of these regions within a, a gene or a protein. So here's a second region. And we ask, do the mutations that fall across these cohort individuals tend to fall in high-scoring positions? those that are likely to take part in interactions. And again, we compute this um, z-score. And maybe we have a, a third region. And these are all uh, kind of knowledge about information. But that's not the only way that we can assign functionality to specific positions within a protein sequence. It turns out we have other domain knowledge, using information I won't tell you too much about, that say, ah, this entire region is important. So let's just ask, do we get mutations in this region more than we do in the rest of the protein sequence. And so we can do the same kind of enrichment analysis for each of these important regions. And then it turns out that if we look at data not just in human and not just across populations, but across all different species, and we have genomes for thousands of species, we can actually get a per position uh, uh, measure of importance for each position within the protein, and this is based on conservation. The idea is if this letter within the protein didn't change, then it's more likely to be important. And so we can do the same enrichment calculation that says do mutations tend to fall in important positions as determined by conservation. So how do we, we have all these kind of independent sources of information within the same protein sequence, how do we consider all of them together? This is tricky business because you can see that these different sources of information hit overlapping portions of the sequence. So it turns out that we can um, put all this information together, and we have, a we have a method that we developed that analytically computes this covariance matrix that tells you how you would expect these things to covary. And then we can use this all uh, within a framework where we think, uh, where, we, where we model it as a multivariate Gaussian. And we ask, where does our uh, mutational pattern fall with respect to this Gaussian. And so we combine these z-scores. Now we can ask, how does such a method perform in trying to identify uh, cancer-relevant mutations and genes? And we call this entire approach pertinent, so for perturbed in interactions. And uh, what we see is that this kind of approach is highly relevant in identifying cancer-relevant genes. So if we take this approach, and we score everything by z-score and rank them, what we want to see is that our highest predictions are things that are known to be relevant for cancer and that this kind of goes down as you go further down our list. So I talked about how we want to do all of this in the context of multiple sources of information, and I focused on interactions, but also talked about conservations and other functionally important regions. So we considered this type of performance first independently across these various types of information, and we see exactly the trend that we want to see where we have a, do a really good job in recapitulating known knowledge, especially at the very top of our list, and any new things that we might predict, we would consider uh, predictions. But what's even more remarkable is that when we used our approach for integrating this information, 
we actually are able to use, um, to, to kind of leverage this complementary information to make even better predictions. Okay, and this whole thing, because we did it analytically, actually is really fast, which I think is extremely important, even with all the compute power we have today, because the amount of genomic data that we're getting is just growing um, faster and faster. So I'm gonna summarize this part of my talk, which is I wanted to say that we put together all different types of biological knowledge to come up with a method that helps us hone in uh, amongst all the different mutations that we see in any individual's cancers, which ones we think are most likely to be relevant uh, for that person's uh, uh, tumor. And I wanted to argue that this is an alternate way to prioritize mutations in an individual's cancer and thus would be highly relevant uh, for uh, treatment. So now I wanna fix, I wanna switch focus a little bit to talk about predicting response to drugs. So how do we measure whether tumors or cells respond to drugs? So typically what you do is you take a drug, in this case we're talking about one drug, and we increase the concentration of this drug, and that's what's shown on the x-axis, and then we see what happens to the cell population, and that's what's shown on the y-axis. The drug is effective, uh, the, 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 the number of cells goes down, and we see that in both cases here, but we can see that we're running it on two different types of cells, and for one cell, the one that's shown in the um, solid line, this drug is more effective. And this can be quantified in a single measure that's called an IC50. So um, because we wanna try to do these predictions, and of course everybody wants to try to, to do these predictions to try to predict the response that a tumor will have uh, to drugs, there have been these efforts, and there are many of them, I'm just highlighting one here, where we try to see what happens when we measure the activity of different compounds or drugs on different types of cancer cells. So in this particular example, GDSC, they looked at the activity of 250 drugs on 960 cell lines. And one thing they observed immediately and that we see over and over again is that cells vary dramatically with respect to how they respond to drugs. So if you take a cell and just tally up its acti the activity that different drugs have on it, take another cell, tally up the activity that different drugs have on it, and compute a correlation between those two vectors um, they, they form this distribution that you see on the screen where mainly you have zero correlation. That's the mean. Okay, and so this maybe makes sense because if you look at different types, these cells are derived from different cancers and cancers vary dramatically. And even individuals with the same cancer, as I mentioned at the beginning of the talk, their molecular basis is different. And so we might expect that these drugs actually uh, respond very differently. So uh, one really remarkable thing for normal cells that's also relevant for cancer cells, so if you think about our own cells and the liver cell and the kidney cell, they actually have the same genome, but they're totally different. They have totally different functions. And so they have same, the same genes are encoded in the DNA, but the reason that they're different is that different sets of genes are turned on or off within these cells, or so different genes are expressed. And we're now, this kind of gene expression is, is one way to encapsulate the state of a cell. And fortunately, we're now in an era where we can measure this in a high throughput, where for all 20,000 genes in human, it's pretty routine to figure out the level of expression of this gene in a cell type of interest. So the type of data that we have to try to predict drug response is the activity of drugs on diverse cell lines, gene expression measurements on untreated cells, this, these gene expression measurements represent kind of the state of the cell. We also have the chemical structure of the drugs or compounds. And our goal is to predict the activity of drugs on a tumor or a cell line using these gene expression profiles that represent state 
along with drug features. Of course, what we'd really like to do is to be able to do this for new tumors, new cancers, and of course, for new drugs so we can help um, guide drug development. So this turns out to be a really hard problem, as you might expect. And looking at the features gives you some idea for why this is difficult. So if we look at um, different cancer cells that's on this y-axis, and we look at the expression of different genes that are known to be relevant for cancer, and we look at the expression levels, we see that they look highly similar, even though a couple of slides ago I told you that these cell lines respond very differently to drugs. So, um, you know, we have to, we shouldn't just think of these genes and their expression levels independently, we have to do more. And fortunately, we can leverage some things about biology here. So one very important thing is if you look within a cell, these genes, as we already said, don't work independently, they work together. And so there's a modular, modular structure in the networks of the cell where genes that interact with each other or they're close together in these networks tend to um, take part in the same biological function. And can we use this information now to aid in our predictions? And so um, just like when you think about images and doing machine learning on images, uh, you know, pixels aren't all independent of each other. We have some positional information. That's the type of information we'd like to capture with these genes. So genes that work together, we'd like to know that they're working together. And so we're going to start off um, with this uh, for, for particular our samples, we're going to start with expression levels for all these genes, but we're going to say, well, certain of these genes work together, and some of this knowledge is encapsulated in what's called gene sets. And we're going to use these gene sets to merge the information of these different genes to do some type of feature reduction. So in our case, we use autoencoders to do this feature reduction. And of course, uh, we know that autoencoders are our neural network approach that lets us get this latent feature space. Um, and we're going to do this in such a way that we're going to use the gene sets to guide um, our, our overall approach. And so we build uh, this architecture where our input layer is connected, uh, not fully connected to our next level, a next level of nodes, but instead we have a node for each possible gene set and the um, input genes are only connected to the nodes, um, uh, only connected to the nodes that correspond to the gene sets that it's a part of. And so we do a, a substantial 50-fold uh, feature reduction in this way. We also use other types of information about state. So as I mentioned in the first part of my talk, expression, of course, is important, but also, is, also mutational information is important. So we keep track also of mutations that fall within known cancer genes, and this is just expressed as a binary vector. And then uh, we know that there are certain genes that are already known to play a role in cancer, and so we keep the gene expression levels of these genes um, as well, along with those of their interactions. Of course, the state of the cell is only half the story. We'd like to make a predictor that uses information about the drug and the cell to make predictions about response. So we also are going to try to um, model the structure of the compounds that we have tested. And just like with uh, genomic data, there are many different types of ways to featureize this. And so we're going to use both 2D structural features that correspond to chemical subgroups, as well as um, physical features that capture things like volume or charge or other physical chemical uh, properties. Oops. OK, so for the chemical features, we start off with drugs. And basically, what we're asking is, do these drugs, which are just chemical things, have certain substructures? 
And the overall intuition is that two drugs, even though they kind of look different globally, if they share a lot of the same features, then perhaps they work uh, uh, similarly. And so we have this way of taking uh, uh, compounds and representing them as these binary bit vectors that correspond to these important substructures. We also have these physical features, which are computed using these nice computational, chemical, computational chemistry packages like PADL, um, where they compute things that involve energetics or charge or volume or other things about the topology of the chemistry. Um, we have many possible things that it can compute, and again, we use autoencoders to reduce um, the feature space here. Okay, so now we wanna put all of this together. So we're gonna build um, these joint uh, feature representations that consist of our genomic data, which corresponded to cell state from gene expression that had been reduced, as well as um, the features that corresponds to the drugs themselves. And then we're gonna combine all this data uh, in a machine learning framework. So we use a kind of straightforward architecture here where we have four layers with an equal number of neurons, and the number of neurons are equal to uh, 1 16th of the um, input features. We did standard things to, to, uh, for regularization and um, trained up this model. So we thought a lot about testing, which is really important here, and actually I think is something that we spend a lot of time uh, trying to do right. And I'll just tell you about one of the ways in which we tested our model. So one thing that we did was we trained many models where we removed all information about um, one drug and its response on many different cell lines. And then we used all the rest of the data, which was a combination of drugs and cell lines and response, and we trained uh, the neural network, and we asked how well could it predict the response of this held out drug on all these different cell lines. There are many ways to measure performance, but the one I'm showing here is area under the rock curve, and this is a number that varies between zero and one, where one is where you have perfect, uh, a perfect performance, and 0.5 is where you're essentially guessing. I have a line for each compound, because we did this in cross-validation across the different drugs, and what you see is that for more than half of these compounds, we have um, area under the ROCs of greater um, than 0.75. So I wanted to say that previously, um, simpler machine learning methods um, that thought a lot less about the types of features that you use and how to reduce representations and used simpler uh, machine learning overall, they did their training not by leaving out an entire drug at a time, but instead by just leaving out one combined drug-cell pair. And what we see, if we look at the ratio of our performance divided by the ratio of their performance, with performance over one being that our uh, method outperforms it, in about half the cases, even though we're training on less data, using no information about the drug itself, we outperform it. And in the remaining cases, we perform competitively. So our machine learning method can predict response of cell lines on drugs uh, that have been previously, that, that it hasn't seen. Um, using information about other drugs. Okay, so just to summarize what we did here, we used a variety of different types of data that had to come from drug activity data, cell state as measured by gene expression, information about networks within the cell, and information about the chemical structure of drugs. 
and we put it all within um, this machine learning framework. And our biologically guided um, neural network approach is able to predict response to drugs, even those that we haven't seen. Um, what I think is really exciting is that by training a model um, across drugs and across tumors, we can make predictions for new drugs and new tumors. And so, of course, I think it's pretty clear here what the ultimate goals are for the field, not just for me. We'd like to be able to use these types of methods to do personalized treatment, to do personalized oncology, so that these types of methods would one day be in the clinic. And on the flip side, from the drug discovery side, we'd like to be able to do in silico drug development, where we can predict the activity of a drug before we actually try to synthesize it in quantities so that we can do these types of experimental methods. Okay, so I'm gonna stop here. I, I thank you for your attention, and I especially wanna thank my two um, students, Shilpa Cobran, who just recently finished and now is a postdoc at Harvard Medical School, and Jose Zamola, who's gonna finish next month and is gonna join the drug discovery team at um, Janssen. Thank you.